All right, let's turn together now in our Bibles to Acts chapter 17. The Apostle Paul's missionary journeys thus far have taken him to several regions in the Roman Empire. He's been to the island of Cyprus. Uh, He's been throughout the region of Galatia and modern-day Turkey. He's been to Macedonia and what we call today the Balkans. And now, this morning in chapter 17, Paul arrives in the magical and mountainous land of Greece. How did Paul get here? Uh, If you look back to verse 14, you remember that when Paul uh, fled persecution in the Macedonian city of Berea, Uh, that he was forced to leave his companions Silas and Timothy behind. He set sail on a ship through the Aegean Sea to the city of Athens in Greece and was waiting there for his companions to join him. So that's where Paul is now, in Athens, Greece. And Athens is a great city. It's not an exaggeration to say that Athens is the birthplace of Western civilization. It's famous then as now for its philosophers, like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. These three famous men, long gone by the time the Apostle Paul arrived in Athens, but later schools of Greek philosophy were still thriving there. Among them, uh, you see in verse 18, the Epicureans and the Stoics. Those are Athenian philosophers. The Athenian philosophers not only asked the questions that Western civilization has been trying to answer ever since, but they also, in an important sense, invented the logical approach to problem solving that eventually would launch Western civilization into the age of science and give birth to the modern world. The Apostle Paul doesn't know all that, of course. He's over a thousand years before those developments. Uh, but he's just waiting in Athens now for his friends to catch up with him. And as we would expect of Paul, he makes the most of the time by evangelizing. Evangelizing the Athenians, just as he had the Galatians and the Macedonians. And what's intriguing about this account is that Paul finds in Athens an interested audience, not only in the Jewish synagogue there, but also among the Greek philosophers of the Areopagus. The Areopagus was a public forum in Athens for discussing philosophy. Uh, The men who hung out at the Areopagus were interested in ideas, especially interested to hear new ideas. New ideas were to them like new material to practice their philosophical skills upon. And so some of them here you'll, you'll hear detected in Paul's preaching things that they had never heard, considered before. And so the Athenian philosophers were curious about Paul and wanted to hear more about what he had to say. And Paul, for his part, is quite ready to speak to the Athenian philosophers of the Areopagus. Many men would have been intimidated by this situation. These philosophers were sharp. And if you didn't argue your points well, they could quite easily chew you up and spit you out. 
But Paul is not intimidated, and he doesn't think that the gospel is not for these intellectual types. He's been sent by Jesus Christ, he understands, to bear witness to the Lord among all men, these Epicureans and Stoics included. As he said to the Romans in Romans 1.14, I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. And so we will hear in Paul's address to the Athenian philosophers today a lot of, a lot of great theology, a lot of important ideas that Paul taught to the philosophers there. But the main point I want to make in the sermon this morning is this one. That Christian evangelists have great things to teach the pagan philosophers of this world, if only they will listen. Christian evangelists have great things to teach the pagan philosophers of this world, if only they will listen. Please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Let us pray. And now, Lord, as we listen to to Paul's address to the philosophers of the Areopagus in Athens, we pray, Lord God, that you would open our understanding to appreciate uh, not only the truth of of what Paul is saying, but uh, the the inspiration for his saying it, uh, why he thought it worthwhile to share these things with with men like this. And we pray, Lord God, that as we consider our our own ministry as a, a church in, in whom, with whom the, the gospel has been entrusted, that we would be encouraged by this, not to be intimidated uh, by the intellectual types, uh, but to see, Lord God, that, that truly we have something uh, to share with them that, that they, as much as any men, need to hear. And so, Lord God, let this be something of the blessing that we receive through your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. So our sermon text today is Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 16 and reading through the end of the chapter. Acts 17, beginning in verse 16, hear now the word of God. Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. And therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshippers, And in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. And some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods. Because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak. We are bringing some strange things to our ears, and therefore we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. And therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, 
since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord, in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, We will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them... Dionysius the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. All right, so you've heard this morning Paul's address to the Athenian philosophers at the Areopagus, and uh, as I mentioned before, because the the foundations of modern thinking were laid by the Greek philosophers, so Paul's address to the Athenians is in some ways uh, a model for evangelistic outreach to the people of a modern society, at least more so than his addresses to the Jewish synagogues. So we want to pay attention today to how Paul approaches this evangelistic opportunity at the Areopagus, because we might learn something that will be helpful to us in evangelizing modern people. So there are three phases of Paul's address that I want to highlight today. Um, The first one, you'll note, is encouraging. The second one is corrective. And the third phase of Paul's address is the one that is distinctively Christian. That is where he begins to preach Christ. Uh, You'll also note that in the first two phases, Paul has the attention of the Greek philosophers. They're interested in what he is saying and listening. But when he comes to the third phase, the gospel one, that's when Paul loses the attention and the respect of many of the Greek philosophers. But importantly, not all of them. Some of them stay with him um, through the third and final phase of his address. Those are the ones mentioned in verse 34. All right, so these are the three phases then. Let's look at each one of them. The first phase of Paul's address to the Athenians is encouraging. Here he basically says to them, you know, you Greeks are, are searching for God here in Athens. Sort of, of groping. For God, and that uh, unfortunately you do so ignorantly, like men who are groping for God in the dark. Now, at first, this might 
seem to be insulting to the Athenians. But you'll note that, that Paul has them here, doesn't he? By their own admission, there were things about the gods which they did not know. Verse 23, he says, Your many idols show me that you are a religious people, and among them I have found this altar with this inscription to the unknown God. So that altar is your own admission that for all your gods, there is still a God whom you do not know. What a great introduction uh, to Paul's address to the men of Athens at the Areopagus. As we look back to verse 16, um, Luke wants us to be uh, assured that Paul was, was quite provoked by the Athenians' worship of idols. He didn't like uh, that one bit. And yet, as Paul begins here, interestingly, he doesn't just come out and, and denounce their pagan worship altogether. But rather, the apostle, we hear him, we feel him encouraging the Athenians that this, uh, this searching, this groping for, for God is it's not altogether a bad thing under the circumstances. Verse 27, we hear God, Paul saying, God wants men everywhere to do this. Verse 27, that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him. That's, that's what God wants, for men to seek him. Verse 27 encourages them that God is not very far from us. He's not, uh, in a sense, beyond our, our reach, so that we're striving in vain. He says there, he is not far from us all, for in him we live and move and have our being. A statement, by the way, which the Stoics as pantheists uh, would have agreed with. And we also hear Paul saying in verse 28 that, that God has a special affection for us as, as men. And Paul, interestingly, quotes approvingly the saying of one of the Greek poets, a pagan poet, who has said, for we are also God's offspring or children. And Paul says, that's right. Okay, so God wants men to do this, to, to seek him. And he's not far from any of us. And he has a special affection for us as men. So we hear there Paul declaring to the Greek philosophers at the Areopagus that it is this God, the, the one unknown to the Athenians, yet near to them and wanting to be found by them, that it's this God that Paul had come to proclaim to them. All right, so understand as you think about that, that among the Athenian philosophers, uh, there, were, uh, there were polytheists, those who believed in many gods, and there were pantheists, those who believed that the universe was God. And, and both of these positions Paul regarded as false religions. So don't take this uh, to be anything else. As Paul said, a, a pagan religion generally in Ephesians 2.12 that ultimately it leaves men without hope and without God in the world. So it's not as if you can really come to know God through pagan religions. But that being the case, it's, it's impressive the extent to which Paul goes here, about as far as he can go, to encourage the Athenians that for all their misguided notions about God and the inadequacies of their worship, that the, the basic religious impulse to seek God was, was not misguided. That was a good thing. God is indeed there. 
And it's right that we should all seek him. Paul's encouraging the Athenians now that if they would follow his leading as he had their ear, that he as a Christian evangelist could show these religious searchers what they were groping for, but had not yet found as they well knew. And at that point, Paul still has their attention. They're still listening to him at this point. And so he goes on. Second phase of Paul's address to the Athenians, uh, this one is corrective. Which he's saying basically, but you see you Athenians are hindered in this noble search for God because your thoughts of him are too small. Why, why is it that you can't grasp the God for which you're groping? Well, part of the problem is your thoughts of him are way too small. Paul makes this point in several ways. Verse 24, we hear him say that God doesn't dwell in our, in our temples that we make. Is that what you guys think? That God dwells in these temples that we make? That's absurd. It's God who created the universe and everything in it. You have to think much bigger thoughts about God. We hear him saying in verse 25, and, and God doesn't need our sacrifices or anything else from our hands. Is that what you think? That's a silly notion. It's God who gives us life and everything in life. You have to think bigger thoughts of God than that. And in verse 26, we hear Paul saying, and God isn't the God of any one little ethnic group. It's God who created the human race, and he's the Lord of us all. So you have to think big thoughts of God. And as in Paul's address to the pagans in, in Lystra back in chapter 14, Paul stresses, we hear him stressing to the Athenian philosophers that, that part of thinking bigger about God is that we have to stop thinking that God has a nature like ours. That he's just like a big version of us. We hear Paul in, in this address stressing that the pagan practice of making and worshipping images of the gods was part of the problem. That, that was a stumbling block to the Athenians. Verse 29, he says, We ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. So he's referring to all these statues and things around him. And he's saying, you know, you understand God's not like that at all. The nature of God the Creator is not like anything in His creation. At least in this way, that everything in creation is limited. But God is limitless being. God overflows time into eternity. God fills all things and yet is not contained by heaven and earth. God's power is infinite. He can do anything. God's knowledge is boundless. He knows everything. And Paul's point is, if you, if you want to find the unknown God for which you are groping, you Athenians have got to think bigger. And not only think bigger, but you have to think differently, qualitatively differently about the divine nature than you're currently thinking, and really than you've ever dared to think before. So I might pause here and <clears throat> compare the Athenians to, to children who have never seen the ocean. So you take these children and you pack them into the, the station wagon and you drive down to Daytona and you get there and you get out of the car and you're in the, the condominium parking lots and it's, it's just rain and there's puddles 
all over the parking lot. So the, the children hear that they're out the ocean. They get out of the car. They're running around the parking lot from puddle to puddle saying, Is this one the ocean? Is this one the ocean? And Paul's like the, a man trying to get these children to, to look up and see what they've yet to see and yet to grasp. Because Paul knows that when once they've seen the reality, they'll never mistake a puddle for the ocean again. Alright, so understand, in this passage, the Apostle Paul is rejecting polytheism. The belief that there are many gods. You can hear that. And he's rejecting pantheism. The idea that, that God is the universe and the universe is God. These are theological errors which Paul is rejecting and we should reject as well. And they're, they're childish errors. Paul is rather boldly suggesting to these proud Athenian philosophers that their thoughts about God were shallow and silly, and they were. And yet, I would point out, even here, Paul still has their attention. They're still listening. And I think they, that Paul even has their respect at this point. Remember, the men of the Areopagus love new ideas. And this idea of God that Paul was articulating was bold and wonderful. And philosophically, it was potentially a new starting point for their theology with vast implication. So these thinkers are here thinking hard about what Paul is saying. And they're not at all displeased necessarily with what Paul is saying. And Paul seeing that does not stop there. But he now presses on to the third phase. And the third phase of Paul's address to the Athenians, that's the distinctively Christian one, in which we hear him say, And you Athenians are hereby put on notice that God has now revealed himself to us all through a man, a man whom he has raised from the dead. So remember the Athenian altar to the unknown God. This was the Athenians' admission of Ignorance. But you hear Paul speak in verse 30 not of a, a state of ignorance in Athens, but of what? Times of ignorance. For a time, it was allowable that the Athenian people, as pagans, should be ignorant of the nature of the true God. And these times of ignorance, represented by these images of the, the pagan gods all over the city of Athens, God had graciously overlooked. But, with the Apostle Paul's entrance into the city of Athens as a Christian missionary, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, he declares those times of ignorance have now come to an end. The one true God was sending men like Paul throughout the pagan world as his messengers, calling all men everywhere to repent that is to repent of their sins. Paul saying to the Epicureans and to the Stoics, on behalf of God, repent of your sins, repent of your blasphemies, repent of your cruelties, prevent of your sexual perversion, prevent your, repent of your crooked business dealings, of your lies and of your greed. And moreover, Paul also means in saying, repent to these men, repent of your idolatry. Because that is a sin too. The God of Paul's gospel was calling, better verse 30, commanding 
authoritatively, all men everywhere, to now abandon this misguided worship of pagan idols, to cease groping after God blindly in this way, and instead come to know and worship the true God as he was now revealing himself to the human race by the light of Jesus Christ, his Son. The New Testament era was now dawning. And God was sending evangelists like Paul to warn the pagan world that the righteous judgment of God was coming upon them and that this final judgment of the human race had been committed by God into the hands of one man who was to rule all nations, whose identity was now known because God had raised this man from the dead. And that's the point. In Paul's speech at the Areopagus, the Greek philosophers in Athens stopped listening and began instead to mock Paul, to smirk and to wink and to feel themselves intellectually superior to this Jew as his audience at the Areopagus no longer interested in him and his message began to melt away. And who knows, if Paul had just stopped at the second phase of his speech, he might have become a respected Athenian philosopher in his own right. His bigger god of monotheism might have become a popular thesis among the Greek intellectuals, at least for a time. But Paul, as a Christian evangelist, had not come to be an Athenian philosopher. He had no intention of stopping at the second phase of the speech. Seeing that he had the ear of this audience of Athenians, Paul pressed on to the third phase, the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, with all of its moral condemnation, with all of its high Christology, with all of its unashamed witness to the resurrection of the body. And that, as you heard for yourself, that's when Paul lost them. But not all of them. Some would hear more. And of those some, like this Dionysius, the Areopagite, in verse 34, even believed and became a Christian. These turned from the pagan idols all over Athens to the worship of Paul's boundless God of the Word. These turned from their sins and repentance, seeing that this God would truly someday judge them and the whole world. And so it was these who turned up again on another day to hear the Apostle Paul tell them more about this man, Jesus of Nazareth, whom Almighty God had now raised from the dead. There were some, even at the Areopagus, who believed. So it was a year ago now that we began our study of the book of Acts together and identified its great theme as the mission of the church. It's a good moment to ask, have we changed it all for what we have heard? A year is a long time in this brief life. How many more of them can we expect before we're called away? Has our hope for the world as Christians shifted at all this year from politics to the gospel ministry of Christ's church? I hope so. 
And have we as a local church grown at all more zealous over the last year in our desire to see the gospel preached to the lost peoples of the earth? And have we ourselves become more bold in doing so? I hope so. If not, how many years will it take? Perhaps the most important lesson that I take away from Paul's great address to the Athenians here in Acts 17 is that we should not think that there is any group or class of people in the world to whom it is pointless to preach the gospel, including the smart people, the educated people. Perhaps it would be helpful to consider something of the modern-day equivalent to the Areopagus in Athens, which might be something like the campus of Harvard University. Can you imagine preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to the students and professors at Harvard University? Can you imagine how intimidating that would be? Can you imagine the looks that you would get? Can you imagine the dismissive taunts that you would hear from the Ivy League scoffers? And most importantly, can you seriously imagine anyone there among the intellectuals at Harvard taking you seriously, Christian? And I say yes. Absolutely. Remember, what is an Athenian philosopher? What is a Harvard grad student? A man. That's all. What are a few IQ points really among us? And what do we all know about ourselves as men? That we don't know everything. And that we're still searching. All of us are. I mean, many of these very people, people at Harvard, would identify as agnostics with respect to God. You know what that label is, which they claim for themselves, agnostic. It's like the altar of the unknown God in Athens. It's an admission that they don't know. Well, then let us tell them. If they're open-minded. Just tell them. I want to stress our theism, our belief in a creator God, one creator God, is as philosophically respectable as any other option to explain the universe. What are the other options? Polytheism, many gods. Pantheism, that God is the universe and the universe is God. And atheism, that there is no God. Those are the only options. Philosophically speaking. And the, and the classical arguments for the existence of God, the, we call them the cosmological argument for the existence of God, and the teleological argument for the existence of God, are as compelling as ever to honest minds. Modernism has not changed anything in that respect. You know those arguments? The, the universe is an effect. Well, for every effect, there's a cause. So what cause is sufficient to explain this magnificent effect? You say, well, the Big Bang. You say, yeah, but the universe is ordered. Order has arisen out of chaos. It shows evidence of design. So there must be a designer, an intelligent mind behind this creation. Who is that? 
Those are still very strong philosophical arguments for the existence of God, as strong as anything that any other school can offer. So let's tell them, if they're open-minded, if they'll listen. And when we come to tell the Harvard men of, of God's condemnation of their sin as men, of course, many will be looking for a way out, and they will think they find it in what is to them the incredible doctrines like the incarnation of God and the resurrection of the body. Hearing that, they'll scoff and dismiss us and melt away, most will, but not all. A few Harvard grad students like this Dionysus, under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, will find themselves in God's grip. And they, for all that they do know, will want to hear more from you, Christian, about what you have to say about Jesus. To be sure, what we do and what we endure enduring it is for their sake. That is, the sake of God's elect. That's true among the intellectuals at Harvard University and everywhere else among the varied peoples of this diverse world to whom Christ might send us as his witnesses. So I end with this declaration. As you heard, the time of our race's ignorance has come to an end. And it's the effectual calling of God's Holy Spirit unto his scattered elect that makes our evangelism to all kinds of people a worthwhile enterprise. As Paul himself taught us in 1 Corinthians 1, 22-24, Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, ah, the Christ we preach is to them the power and the wisdom of God. Shall we pray?